Do you watch YouTube? Flight of the Concords, Jermaine and Brit. We're back in New Zealand where we invented rap. Brit's known as the Rhyme Nosferis, and I'm AKA as the Hip Hop Apotamus. And these silly men and often inappropriate, so don't consider this an endorsement of their wares, but they're awfully funny and clever and foul. Like to do their folk parody duo. And there's a particular rhyme they have that you may have seen, the hip hopopotamus versus the rhyme nostril. It's kind of a New England folk rap war. And in one scene, Jermaine starts to freestyle, a.k.a. Eminem and 8 Mile or something, except he's no good at it, and he's from New Zealand, and he's playing a guy who's no good at it, and so he starts to freestyle his rap. He's hoping that rhymes will roll, the cadence will pop. And he starts to get confused, and he looks around, and he says, there's a picture of New York, there's a picture of New York, there's a great big crazy picture of New York. I'm freestyling. Sometimes when I'm freestyling, I lose confidence. (laughs) And I like that. Sometimes when I'm freestyling, I lose confidence. I think this passage today in our continuing series of Giving Them Heaven, the most cleverly, pithily titled sermon series ever to be given in the history of Christendom. Give Them Heaven about our calling to be an embassy of the heavens right here on earth, an outpost, a colony of the values and ways and warmth of our Savior in a visible and concrete way to people where they can Breathing in, where they can feel it, they can experience it, they can see it, and they can say, wow, this Martian people lives in a really compelling way. Paul has reminded the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven. And today's passage is in a lot of ways about confidence. Knowing that when we're freestyling, sometimes we lose confidence. Just like the hippopotamus. And he's urging us. And inviting us to consider letting our freestyling confidence be eroded by the God who wants to undermine all our anxiety and erode all our confidence in our ability to freestyle. He wants us to move in style with him. He wants us to move in step with him. And so he gives us this very tangible and very helpful thing, a two-step Admonition, a power of asking. He says to Euodia and Syntyche, which are, of all the Bible names I've heard, I've never heard anybody name their kids that. So that still exists. Yodia and Syntyche. Yod, for sure. Some Star Wars dude somewhere needs to get that. I plead with Yodia and Syntyche. I plead with them to agree with each other in the Lord. He's going to tell us about agreement, and he's going to tell us about how to undo anxiety. Both of those, you may not realize, have to do with confidence. 
Lack of agreement has to do with confidence. Anxiety has to do with confidence. And he first starts by asking. He says, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, it may seem a little weird. Think about if you were Yodia and Syntyche. And you get this letter from the Apostle Paul that now gets to be in the Bible. Do we think about these as being real people? Like, they're in the Bible forever and ever, and the only thing we know about them is that they were in a fight. That's nice. Is he doing like that pastor I read about on Yahoo face page who recently excommunicated his members on Facebook without telling them? You're next. I'm not on Facebook, so you're safe. I'll just tweet it out. I don't know about that story, but I think that's not what the apostle's doing here. He's naming two people who are apparently these women who are apparently leaders in the church. They've contended by a side in the cause of the gospel and the cause of bringing to bear the reconciling mercies and the wonders and warmth of God's rehabilitation of the earth. These, they've worked with Paul in bringing this to bear, and apparently they are in some kind of disconnect. They're alienated from some each other in some kind of way, and he's mentioning them because they're leaders in the congregation, and so the congregation obviously knows about this. You remember, when you read the Bible, you're reading somebody else's mail. We don't know what the disconnect is. We don't know what the conflict is. We just know they're not in agreement, so he's saying, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. Now, it's an interesting thing to plead with somebody to agree. There are two ways, it seems to me, that you can agree with someone. And the apostle's very concerned with agreement. He's very concerned with unity. He's piggybacking, of course. He's, he's hitchhiking with Jesus on this concern. Because Jesus said the way you prove the Trinity is not by the ontological argument for the existence of God. You prove, you prove the Trinity. You prove that God, the Father, sent the Son by how you love each other. And how you demonstrate unity, agreement, how you move as one body, contending as one man when stress comes on you, considering others better than yourselves, moving in humility, being one. That's a big concern of the Bible. It's all over the case. It gets a little, if you're not into it, it gets a little annoying because there's such a refrain of it everywhere. We just sang about it. You'll, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Well, so one of the ways you get unity is that you just happen to think the same exact thing, which is really fun. Sometimes you'll get that with, like, your best friend. You like your friends because you happen to think the same exact thing. Oh, my gosh, that dress is so cute. You think it's cute. She thinks it's cute. It's cute. Woo! Oh, man, you like to hunt? I like to hunt, too, man. That's awesome. You like, you like red men, too? All right. <laughs> we both like red men. We both like to kill things with guns. We love, both like the same dress. Sometimes you just like the same thing, and it's easy to agree. And so you can pray that. You're in disagreement with somebody. You're alienated from them in some way. You need reconciliation in some way. You can pray that God will magically help them to think finally the right way, the way that you think. Because that's one way unity can happen, is everybody can just suddenly, in a church, in a household, at a business, everybody can just suddenly think the same exact thing. 
But if you've been around any other people beside yourself for even more than three or four seconds, you realize that that way of getting unity is very difficult to come by because people tend to preference themselves over others. They tend to think that what they think is better than what you think and you know better because what you think is better than what they think. So the other way you get it, when he says, I plead with you to agree with each other in the Lord, the other way you get it is you, you say, you know what, I guess, I guess it's not so important what I think. Hmm. I guess I don't have to have my own way. I guess I am free because Jesus likes me and the universe isn't mine after all to experience freedom and liberation from the strangling tyranny of having to get my own way everywhere I go. I'm free from the inordinate sense of confidence I have that I alone am right and my bozo, fill in the blank, son, boss, spouse, friend, mom, I'm right and they're idiots. And we cannot be unified until they come closer to me. And Paul would say, agree. Yodia, agree. Syntyche, agree. Yelling grace at them. If he's yelling at them to agree, he must be urging them in the same way that he urged earlier, consider others' interests better than yourselves. He must be asking them to model what he's seen in Timothy. Everybody, everybody cares about their own interests. But Timothy, I've got nobody else like him. He cares about the interests of Jesus Christ. He has a genuine interest in your welfare. In fact, he forgets about himself in service to you. If you want unity, that's the way it comes about mostly. The most dreadful rated R word in the American lexicon, submission. You can get an XC70 rating in a movie if you use the word submission in it. It doesn't matter if there's any nudity or graphic violence, but if you say submit, if you say you want something and you're not going to obey yourself, but you're going to defer to somebody else, that is grounds for being banned to Siberia. And Paul says, in the Lord, the Lord who has shown himself to be someone who has deferred to you, who has submitted for your good, who has laid down his wishes For the fathers who said, yet nevertheless, not what I will, since I'm about to die, because that's what you're that's what you're facing in your submission issue. But what you will. And see, when it all boils down, if you crystallize it to one point, when you're in disagreement with somebody, very often it's the case of a crisis of confidence. You're trying to figure out. Must I get my way, which is to say. Do I continue to have confidence in my vision for what ought to be? Do you realize that that's what you're doing? Well, think about it. You may, you may conclude that I'm wrong, and then you'll be wrong. Thank you. Thank you. But it's about confidence. When you need somebody to agree with you and you're not willing to bow, you're not willing to give up, you're not willing to be wrong, you're not willing to let them do it their way because it must be done your way, you need to critique them, you need to get on to them, you need to say something to them, and you stay in disagreement. Ask and see 
Look and see just for a minute if maybe, just maybe, you have such a degree of confidence about how the future should be formed and how the present should be regulated and how the past should have gone and how things with this person should go. See in your mind if you're not being like a mini-God, M-I-N-I, like a small one, and you have too much confidence in your own vision of what the people around you should be. A bridge... To that is, you know, the Apostle Paul, in the previous passage that we preached from last week, he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view on things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? He tells them what he thinks, and then he leaves it to God to help them sort out where they're wrong. And presumably where he's wrong. Do you ever do that? Do you ever say, God, first of all, in this conflict, where am I wrong? Where do I need to change in order to seek agreement? Where do I need to respond less defensively? Where do I need to be more affirming? Where do I need to go and apologize? When's the last time you apologized to somebody? Hopefully it was yesterday. If you're doing it right, it was at least sometime in the last 24 hours. If you're doing it wrong, you haven't done it in a while. You have an opportunity, I'm thinking, every day, and I don't even know all of you. There's my confidence. But do you have some confidence that I don't know what's best, but I know that God can make things appeal and occur to people? Boy, it takes me off the hook a little bit. I I can seek change in myself. I can seek God to change them as they need, but I don't have to be the change agent. And I don't have to impose my picture of the future on them. It's about confidence. God wants to erode your confidence in your own freestyling ways. Just like the hippopotamus. He also wants to erode your confidence in your picture of the future, which makes you so anxious. And he goes on, he says, and these, these verses are so famous. Most of you, if you've memorized any of the Bible, you might have memorized this out of necessity. Or you got a Thomas Kincaid painting and it had it on there. Or someone did a cross point, needle, a cross stitch needle point, and it was on there. You have an elegantly calligraphized poster or border in your house that says these words. And they're good words. That's why they get repeated all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Don't, he says, be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is one of those passages where The Bible has a great concern for you to get a present benefit from Jesus' work for you. Because you know one of the main stays of what Jesus has done is that he is with us. And he wants there not to be any imagining of anything happening where he is not. In fact, 
He would say, whenever you start to concoct pictures of the future, of what's going to happen to you or what's going to happen to people around you, that inasmuch as you think that you're going to be freestyling then, that you're going to be doing it all by yourself, you are what he could elegantly call in Matthew 6 a pagan, a godless person. You're an atheist. You're acting as an atheist. You're not actually an atheist, but you're acting like one. But it's encouraging to me that the apostle knows. He knows that we ask. We're what-if kind of people. We're, we're vulnerable kind of people. Where on the one hand, we have all this power. We have all this dignity. We have all these abilities to do all these things. But we have this kind of imagination that can run wild. And it does strike me to say to you, if you are someone who has a very vivid imagination, my guess is that you are going to struggle with anxiety more than other people. Because anxiety is an imagination affliction. If you do not have a good imagination, you will look down on people who worry a lot, but that may just be that you're a clod. Just kidding. No, it's a gift that you bring to the world. But see, anxious people tend to be very empathetic people. They too kind of coalesce. So the Apostle Paul tells them not to be anxious. You think that means because he never worries? Ha! You don't tell people to do stuff unless they're, you know about it. He's thinking about it. He knows what his antidote is to the anxiety, and he tells us in other places his anxiety that he daily feels for all the churches. He says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you because I'm worried about you. He's worried about you. When you care about somebody, you worry about them. But that's not the anxiety he's talking about here. So the fact that you don't ever worry may just mean you don't care about anything. And it may just be that you don't have much imagination, in which case... If you don't have much imagination, you don't worry much, that's, you know, God's gift to you, not your gift to God. You can offer it to God, and you can offer it to other people to help them. But if you are somebody who worries, and you'll start to realize it's an imagination disorder, what will happen is you'll you'll ask a lot of what-if questions. You may not explicitly ask them, but you'll ask them. You wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning in a cold sweat and you start to wonder, what if, we, what if we don't have enough for retirement in 20 years or in 7 years? What if we run out of money? What if we can't put the kids through college? What if something happens to my child? What if I get eaten by a bear? What if a giant pterodactyl comes down and scoops up my car while I'm driving down the highway? What if one of my children gets taken and they don't have Liam Neeson as a father? (laughs) What if I get multiple sclerosis? What if I get cancer? What if I die? What if I orphan my children? What if something happens to my children that is awful and they're unprotected? These things, they come into our minds, some of them born of care. And they afflict us. They strangle us. Our imagination starts to run wild. We start to envision futures where God is not any longer there. And that is like gas on the fire of our fear. And it starts to pop and crack and suffocate us. In the worst cases, you get panicky and you think you're having a heart attack and you can't sleep and you can't stop ruminating. In other cases, it just makes you work feverishly. The scriptures say, in vain you rise early and stay up late because the Lord provides sleep for those you love. You don't have to work all the time, for instance, in anxiety because you have God. 
And that's what Paul's trying to say here. Do you really have so much confidence that you, your puny little shoulders are holding up the earth? And that everything about the future depends on you, your picture of the future? That you really think you know best how things ought to go? And that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Like, practice praising God. Instead of rehearsing all the things that might, what if, happen, with gratitude, present your requests. Instead of just doing an inventory of all the ills that might befall you and yours, why don't you do an inventory of all the good that God has placed in your life and all the ways that he's converted good out of evil? All the ways that he's sustained you. Why don't you start to look for that? He urges us. It's a displacing of your confidence. Why don't you let God help erode and undermine your anxiety and your confidence in yourself? Some of the times when you pray, you know, sometimes too much praying can be a sign of anxiety. Some of you feel worse after you pray and not peaceful. Has this ever happened to you? If you're a particularly anxious person, you'll pray and you'll start to think of prayer as a way to get God just to do all the stuff that you want because you have a picture of your best future. And God must materialize it. And so you're anxious about whether he's going to or not. You're probably doing it wrong. But that's okay. We all do it wrong. But that's why you've got to keep at it. You've heard me talk about the, the idea of compression. Like in the Psalms, you'll have these Psalms where the psalmist will say, Lord, how long? Day and night I drench my tears. I'm swimming in a waterbed of sorrows. You know. I drenched my couch. I just, I can't eat. I'm gaunt, emaciated. And then all of a sudden, like two verses, away from me, evildoers, the Lord has heard my prayers. Now I shall be able to fly. Thank you. Some people are listening. It doesn't actually say now I should be able to fly, but you get this sense of like, oh my goodness, the Lord heard my prayer, and now everything, all bets are off. I'm good. Well, that's poetry, and that's compressed. Look back over your life sometimes. You might look at parts of your life and say, man, there were years where I was so sad, or I was so down, I was so disheartened, I was so confused, I was so ground down by the wheels of living, and I was praying and praying, and I was seeking prayers, and I was seeking the Lord, and man, look what he's brought me through now, years later. And if you were describing that on a piece of paper, it might sound like it happened in 32 seconds. There's a lot of stuff like that. For some of you, your anxiety is going to be your best invitation to have a relationship with God. And it's going to be the best thing you have to offer to people in the world. Because do you realize in a land, for instance, where your baby has the largest chance of living longer than any human on the face of the earth has ever lived... You are inclined as a mother or father, a new mother or father, to worry about that baby more than any parent has ever worried about their baby in the history of the planet. Do you understand that those two should be a disconnect? But it happens. We have new disorders of psychological malady in industrialized nations. Where we have the most money and the most medicine and the most technology and the most overreaching government and the most infrastructure and the most everything, we also with it have the most worry. I remember listening to the physician in charge of student services at Vanderbilt when Kathy and I were living 
in Nashville and teaching us our Sunday school class. And he said, you know, when every young college girl in who comes into the student health center has to be on Prozac. This was 25 years or 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Has to be on Prozac. There's something wrong with the way we're living. And I'm not opposed to Prozac for whatever it's worth here. I believe God works through medicine. I'm not anti-medicine. I don't believe in the morning when I say, Lord, please give me coffee that I, I don't expect it to come. I expect it out of means. I expect that some dude grew it and it came in a truck and someone bought it in a car and God's involved in a very massive and complicated and wonderful economy where everybody does meaningful things. And so I get coffee from the Lord's hand, but it came through 42 other hands first. And so if he wants to give me healing through a medicine, great. And you should think of medicine that way too. Huh. But... If everybody's on anti-anxiety medicine, does that say anything about the way we're living or the way we're construing life? And isn't it interesting in the the westernized nations or just the developed nations where God is no longer part of the public imagination? That's where people are the nervousest. And I looked it up. Nervousest is a word. The superlative of nervous. People are the most nervousest in lands where they don't believe in God anymore. And we're tempted. It's hard for us to believe that God actually exists when nobody else around us believes that way. That's why we got to help each other in this. That's why we got to commit ourselves to things like prayer, monumental something that feels like a minuscule nothing. Paul's saying this is the way you get the peace of Christ is you go after him and you say, you've got to undermine my confidence in my own ability, undermine my own confidence in my own Shoulders to hold up the world. Help me to release my grip on my kids, on my spouse, on my job, on my money, on my future. And believe that you have it in hand. Let peace come as my confidence in myself gets small and my confidence in you gets large. You've heard me say, I remember the epiphany. The wondrous freedom that came when this young boy, Kayler Youngblood, was just a wee bean. And I remember sitting there, you know, for like the first two weeks of his life, I don't think Kathy or I ever even slept. And I realized, like, I'm probably at some point going to need to sleep. But I would sit there and watch this kid. And at some point, a revelation from the Lord. Your watching him doesn't make him breathe. Now, that is, that's like Nobel laureate intellectual discovery right there. I'm saying it to you, that's free advice, parents. Watching your children doesn't keep them breathing. It's important. Like, when I walk out of this room, he's going to keep breathing or not, but it ain't going to have anything to do with my eyes. I guess I'm going to have to trust God to keep him breathing, just like I have to trust him to keep me breathing. God, who gives life and breath to everything. See, we believe that we run on God. Just, just Most of our world is running on him. They just don't acknowledge it. But we're the people who acknowledge it and lean into it and get the benefits of the freedom from not being tyrannized by strangling anxiety and a strangling need to get what we want. We realize he's really smart and he's really wise and he's really good and he really likes us and he can do things. And so we should surrender control to him as our Savior did. So here's an application. 
just one simple application. You saw this perhaps, the, any of the three or four of you that read an essay I wrote a few weeks ago called Phones Are the Worst. It's a silly application about anxiety. Paul says the Lord is near. Don't be anxious. The Lord is near. Agree with each other in the Lord. One of the things you have to determine in your life is, are you going to live as if the Lord is near? Or are you going to live as if the Lord is far? Is he here? Is he coming back soon? Well, every day is one day sooner. Whatever, whenever he's coming, it's all one day sooner. That's how Paul said earlier. One day closer now. But he's also near experientially. You've got to count on it. You may not feel it, but you've got to count on it. And one of the ways you can count on this is, is has to do with your telephone. I had a friend the other day who, who was trying to find out how to get in touch with somebody that we were trying to get in touch with, trying to set up some plans. And he said, I've looked all over the Internet. I've looked over Facebook. I can't find an email address. I can't find anything about them on the Internet. And I said, have you, since we knew where they, have you called where they work and just asked for them? Because we knew where they worked. I'm sure that was on the Internet. And he said, oh, I forgot that these things worked as phones. That's a fictitious smartphone. We're getting where it's increasingly easy to avoid each other, to not want to talk to each other, to text instead of call, or to text instead of talk face-to-face. And there are all manner of reasons why that might be the case. You might hate people. You would describe it as, I hate the phone, I'm an introvert. That's fine, that's all good. Those are all valid reasons. Hating people, hating the phone. I don't mind if you hate the phone. Being an introvert, not liking to talk, not liking to be around anyone. But, is it possible that one of the main reasons you don't like to make a phone call or to go see somebody is that it takes away your ability to self-edit. Which is to say, if I'm texting someone, I can see unnervingly witty. Matt Jelly, man, you text with that dude, he's going to zing you. He's going to make you cry and laugh at the same time. You say, how does he do it? But if I'm talking on the phone, I might, you know, I don't have the, there's not the lag time. Like on radio, I got to respond right then. It takes away my moment to curate myself, to make myself look a certain way. I might be asked a question and go, uh. And then all of a sudden you'll know I'm a doofus or I'll fear you think I'm a doofus. Of course, you won't think I'm a doofus because you're sitting there worrying that you're a doofus. The apostle told his, I mean, Jesus told his disciples, when you go before courts, make up your mind beforehand, not to worry about what you're going to say. Trust that words are going to be given to you. Paul is saying don't worry because he knows struggling and suffering is going to come their way. And he knows that their confidence is in their ability to freestyle, they're going to shirk it. They're just going to be eaten up by anxiety. But if they go into situations counting on the Lord is near. It's been one of the most fun and freeing things about being a pastor to me. Somebody who's afraid of everything. Giant shadows, bugs landing on my nose. Going into situations where I had no idea what to do. Standing up here to preach and having nothing except this to look at. You look at this and see if you can read any of what it says. And thinking, oh boy, I hope God gives me some words because if he doesn't, everybody's going to know what my family already knows, namely that I'm a great big giant fake doofus. 
But how fun it is to get up and say, okay, here we go, Lord. Woo! And jump out and see if he comes. See if his words come. Calling somebody on the phone and saying, you know what? I don't have, the, I don't have a chance to script this out. There's too many phone calls to make. I'm just going to call them and have to trust that I'm going to listen to them. It's going to be revolutionary. I'm just going to hear what they have to say instead of formulating my own response. I'm just going to try to listen to them. And then if I need to respond, trust God to give me a response. See, living with God's nearness in real time, it's fun and scary. But it beats being anxious about everything. It beats avoiding people. It beats avoiding hard situations because you don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know if you're going to be able to make it come out the way you want. You let your confidence be undermined. Undermound? Undermined in yourself. And you put it in God to make something happen. When I went on sabbatical, I'll close with this. Three years ago, I was talking to Scott Jones, one of our elders, my good friend. There was something important happening in the church. There's always something I view as important happening in the church. And I was trying to get out. I was trying to extricate myself from my duties so I could begin my sabbatical. And I was involving in these emails. And I was telling Scott all the things he, he in the session needed to know about a very complicated situation. And at the end of it, Scott said, that is all really good stuff. But I think that you need to stop. In fact, if we can't handle this without you gone, we're all just kind of sunk anyway. And I started thinking, you know, if I just died, this, I don't mean to be morbid here, but here's how I got able to lean into my sabbatical. If I died, like right now, none of the stuff that I think is so important would be taken care of by me. It might get taken care of, but I know for certain it would not be taken care of by me because I would be dead. So in my mind, I had to do this to shut off my responsibility disorder and the disorder of my imagination. I had to say, okay, during the sabbatical, I pretend that I am dead. But you know what? What's interesting? And some of you, when you hear this, are never going to sleep again. The more neurotic you are, good luck. But ancient people... They practice going to bed as preparation for death. I'm like, dear God, man, why did you tell me that? (laughs) You know the child's scary prayer, if I die before I wake, feed Jake, he's been a good dog. No, that's a country song. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. This recognition that going to bed at night is practicing offering yourself up to God. You may not realize it, but it's a great gift to realize that going to bed is an act of faith, a joyful act of faith for many of you. You go to bed and trust that God's going to be up all night, looking after things while you're totally comatose. And in the morning, without you sending a text, without you making a call, without you fussing over anyone, without you getting on to anyone, the sun might just come up. And if it does, you won't have had anything to do with it. Sometimes when we freestyle, we lose confidence. God wants you to lose confidence in your pictures of the future. He wants you to lose confidence in your ability to handle the world on your own. He wants you to defer to the Lord Jesus Christ who is near, who is for you, and who has said, you're not irresponsible to not worry. You're just mine.
Amen.